Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Welcome everyone to City Beautiful Church. My name is Ryan. I'm pastor here. We're in um, our second Sunday in this new series uh, called Piercing the Veil. The Lord gave us this vision at the beginning of the year, telling God's story with everything that we are. And how do we, how do we integrate? You know, every part of what it means to be a human being is kind of geared towards being immersed in the story of God, allowing that to transform us, to translate us. And then we go out and we tell that story in, in, in our words and in our actions in a way that it welcomes other people into a relationship with him. And so we're taking the summer to look at the literally, literally the stories that Jesus told in his earthly ministry called parables. And to see there's something there that it's more than just Jesus conveying information to us. Jesus didn't come and just give us a kind of a one-sheet summary of the kingdom and said, just memorize this and then you're going to be good. But he actually told us these stories that were there to kind of challenge us and to confuse us and to kind of, even what I was talking about last week, that the the parables are this discourse and that they are intended uh, to send us off course that we might find ourselves on a dramatically new one. And so kind of the main way we're looking at the parables is that parables open us to the mystery of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. That's what they're there for, is that they're to open us up to the mystery of who God is as revealed in Jesus and what his kingdom is really like. And so there's really kind of two questions that we're always asking with each parable in this series as we're looking at it. Number one, what is the king like? What is God actually like? Jesus' primary mission was to come and to reveal to mankind, this is what God is really like. And so it's through these stories that he's igniting our divine imagination to begin to see a God that's a little bit more real and perhaps even more accurate than some of the small visions that we've been given before. And then secondly, well, what is his kingdom like? If we're invited to recognize that Jesus is Lord, that we live in his new reality and his kingdom, then what, what is the fabric of that kingdom? How do we know it? How do we, how do we know that we're experiencing it or that we're sensing it or, or that we're part of it? And so the parables are there to kind of help to shake us up, to get us out of our assumptions um, and kind of being immersed in the status quo and to begin to have a, a dramatically new vision uh, for what God is really up to. So I'm going to pray and we're going to jump right into this. Heavenly Father, we testify the truth that you're here and that you're with us that you are for us and you are not against us. Lord, we thank you for um, sweet times of worship where we can uh, just kind of step into that reality to allow it to wash over us, to remind us of who we are uh, in the light of the love that you have for us. Uh, and so, Lord, as we continue on in this journey through your parables, I pray that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit, that you would take us by the hand. And whether it's walking through things that seem all so familiar that that there's maybe uh, just a lack of, of clarity because something's been there so long in our story or if something seems offensive or if something just seems flat out confusing that we know we can always lean into you, um, that you're going to draw us deeper into your truth if we're faithful, uh, to listen to you, to be obedient, and most of all, to trust you. And that's why we're here, Lord. We want to learn how to trust you and to follow you wherever you take us. And so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
So I'm going to give you kind of my main point up front, because that's a great place to put it. And this is the kind of the thing that I want you to attach everything to, because I think as we're going through the parable for today, sometimes it might be a little bit hard to see this reality in the story itself. So the big, the big message for today is that the kingdom of heaven lives in the space where total acceptance meets total transformation. The kingdom of heaven, the new reality of God, burst into the world through Jesus, through the spirit, through the church, it lives in the space where total acceptance meets total transformation. This has been something that I've been meditating on for several months. And as I was engaging with the parable that we're going we're to step into today, the Lord really started to bring it together that perhaps this is the place for us to really unpack what that means. Today, we're going to be looking at um, the parable of the wedding banquet or the parable of the great banquet. It's going to be found in Matthew chapter 22. I want to give you a little bit of background because it's, it's very important when we're engaging with the parables of Jesus that we take them in context. And so today's going to be really fun. I get to talk about history and really obscure facts, and then we're going to actually dive into the story. So what's happening here in Matthew 22 is we're in the last days of Jesus's earthly ministry. He's entered into the city of Jerusalem, and he's really beginning to stir things up. There's almost this electric tension in the air in the city that week as they're preparing for Passover. But the religious elite are, are kind of gathering up their antipathy against Jesus and this peaceful revolution that he's bringing, this dramatically new vision of what God is really like. Because for the religious and the political elite of the day, they were the ones that had the corner on the market when it came to God. And they really liked the system the way that it was already set up because the system worked in their favor, because the system kept certain people kind of um, unhealthily attached to these religious ways of doing things, of, of trying to earn favor, of trying to find their place in God's larger story. And it was in their best interests to maintain that sense of status quo. And then all of a sudden comes this radical rabbi from a far off country. We could say Galilee is maybe kind of like the Minnesota of, uh, of this, this, the Middle East, you know, right? You, you know what it's like out there. It's kind of this, the tundra, this wild place. And he's coming into the city of Jerusalem to kind of go head to head with the powers and authorities of the day. And so Jesus is beginning this challenge. And what he's doing is he's trying to convince all of Israel from the, the richest to the poorest uh, to repent, to rethink their salvation, to rethink what does it mean to be part of God's kingdom. And in, this, uh, in these several chapters, uh, Matthew 22, 23, 24, and 25, he uses several parables to illustrate this. He uses a parable of a withered fig tree. He talks about these two sons. He talks about the tenants in a vineyard, and he talks about this wedding banquet. And each of these parables, first and foremost, at the first level of us understanding them, are a critique against Israel and the attitude by which they're receiving the message of Jesus. And so I'm going to read uh, this parable of the wedding banquet, and you can read along on the screens. But I would also encourage you, if you want, just to close your eyes and just allow the Lord to give you some sort of a visual reference uh, for what's going on here, and perhaps even uh, to have the audacity to ask God where specifically you might be fitting into this story uh, based on where you're at with him today. And so this is Matthew 22, 1 through 14. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened calf have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. 
But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army to destroy those murderers and burn their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners, invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. And the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Amen. This is a hard parable. We're just going to just dive right in and we're going to just take up the real juicy ones. There's a lot of phrases in this that I think maybe cause us uh, to kind of shudder, to, to feel very uncomfortable. And, and, and to a certain extent, extent, I think Jesus knows what he's doing when he speaks these things. Again, I've said many times before, I think the way that Jesus spoke was so eloquent. Every word, every phrase was, was chosen exactly for its according purpose. But we have to really follow him where he's trying to lead us and to not make some presuppositions of what he's trying to say. And so I think the big thing that we need to start with, the lens through which we read this parable is this. God is throwing a party for his son, and we are all invited. We have to start with the celebratory nature of this parable. I think a lot of times we've been, um, we've been conditioned uh, to be looking for the scary bits. And sometimes we can miss that there's this underlying fabric to the parables that Jesus speaks. And this, Jesus chooses a scenario in which there is a party, there's a king, and he's throwing a party for his son. There's a celebratory nature to what's happening here. And, and the fact that it's a wedding feast, we're also talking about there's a celebration of union, there's a celebration of love, there's a celebration of togetherness. And I think this begins to speak to the heart of God. And if we miss that this is about a celebration of love, when we begin to step into some of the more difficult phrases that Jesus uses, we're going to miss it. Because if we lose that lens, then the difficult stuff becomes distorted. And we end up taking things from this parable that were never intended. And so essentially what Jesus is saying is this, God decided to throw a party for his son, for the wedding of his son, the union between creator and creation. And then God reached out to the original wedding party, the, the people that were on the, the, the list first that were supposed to be invited in, the people of Israel, that God had chosen them at one point to be the, the seed, the beginning of His revolution of, of rescuing the whole world. And so God first went to Israel to say, I'm throwing this party. My son is here. I'm inviting you to my table to celebrate with me, to eat of the delicious food that I've prepared for you. And Israel decided in that moment to say, no, we have other things to do. We don't really want to be there. In fact, he goes so far as to say he, they seized, the rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. And so what God is speaking of there is the prophets that he sent towards the end of the Old Testament era to shake up Israel out of her apathy, to say, hey, wake up, you're missing it. You're becoming too comfortable with this sense of power and privilege that you have, that you're already on God's side. 
You need to wake up. You need to repent. You need to come home to recognize what his heart really is like. And so the original wedding party refused to show up when it came time, when the wedding was being prepared, and they killed anybody who tried to call them up, to invite them in. And then there's that difficult line, he sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now, of course, these, would, these are the kind of lines that have been used throughout history, not least of which in Nazi Germany, uh, as an example of anti-Semitism. And it's very important that we recognize this is not an indictment against being Jewish. This is an indictment against repentance. This is an indictment against not choosing to show up when you're called. Because the new reality of God was not about your genetic makeup. It was about your willingness to answer the call to come into the household and to find your seat at the table. And so what does Jesus mean when he uses this line of burn their city? Some scholars think that Matthew kind of actually adds this in later on to his gospel uh, to give evidence of something that happened later on in history. So in Matthew 22 through 25, Jesus is kind of prophesying against Jerusalem. And what he's saying specifically is you need to change your tune because if you continue down the path you're going, you're going to find destruction. And it's very important that you recognize that in the very beginning of this part of Jesus' story, he says, I'm telling you the truth, there are some that are alive today that are going to see all of these things fulfilled. So a lot of times we read these chapters of Matthew and we think that it's about this end times prophecy, but what he's actually prophesying is something that was going to happen in that generation. That if Israel didn't change its tune that if they didn't continue to try to rebel against the Roman Empire the way that they were going about doing it, they were going to be destroyed. And so we find the first Jewish-Roman war in 67 AD where Israel actually does what they wanted to do. They beat up the Romans and they pushed them out of their city. They pushed them out of their state and they reestablished Israel as they wanted to be their kingdom. But then in 70 AD, Rome comes back with a vengeance, laid siege to the city, and flattens the entire thing. And this is what it means when Jesus says, I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left upon another. Because it was that rebellious attitude of the people of Israel that brought about, brought about their doom in AD 70. And this is what Jesus time and again is hammering through these chapters. If you don't repent, if you don't rethink, if you don't come over to the side of God and recognize how He's calling you to respond to the world around you, you're going to be destroyed. And we find that that actually comes true uh, in, a, in a span of 40 years from Jesus' era. The next line is in verse 13. where there's this man that comes to the party and the king says to him, well, where's your wedding clothes? Why aren't, you, why aren't you ready for this? And the man doesn't really have anything to say to that. And so the king tells the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this is another line that's very difficult and perhaps has been uh, miscommunicated to us in the past, but I think it's very important that we understand what it means in context that this was a phrase that's almost exclusively used in the New Testament of weeping and gnashing of teeth, and it's speaking of a place of despair and hopelessness, a place that's outside the outer darkness, this other thing that's separate from the kingdom of heaven, from the new reality of God and everybody who chooses to repent and to come back into that. 
And we actually find in the previous chapter when Jesus begins this long conversation with Israel that he describes what it means to be in the place of the weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 21, 31 and 32, he says, Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, and he's speaking here to the religious elite of the day, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe in him. And so the invitation to the party, the invitation to the kingdom, is an invitation to the kingdom here and now in this moment to be in relationship with God, to be in relationship with all of those people that have chosen in to say yes. And Jesus' indictment against the religious elite of the day is you think that you're in because you know all the rules. You think that you're in because of your genetic makeup. You think that you're in because you're in this position of privilege and power, and of course God wants to support you now. But I tell you the truth, you're missing it all because you think that you've already arrived, that it's about your righteousness, which is a self-righteousness, because you knew all the rules and the regulations, and you're the ones that are doing it right, but I'm telling you that it's all of these despised people, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the ones who aren't very good and the ones who don't have a whole lot of value, they're the ones that are entering into the kingdom ahead of you. And so Jesus gives us this juxtaposition of the wedding party and the outer darkness. Because what is the alternative to the kingdom of God? It's a world that's obsessed with competition and power struggles of oppression and despair. This outer darkness, this hell on earth. That's what we think we need to do when we're self-righteous when it's about us performing and achieving and succeeding, when it's about us just doing what we need to do to get our piece of the pie. That's what Jesus means by the outer darkness. I want you to just take, just, we're going to take 10 seconds, close your eyes, and I want you to think about a moment in your life where you were overcome by that. Have you experienced hell in your own life? A moment of deep hopelessness or despair, a moment of oppression, a moment of vicious competition. I think on some level, we all know that reality. We know what it means to weep. We know what it means to, to gnash our teeth in anguish because there's that thing deep within us that says this isn't the way things are supposed to be, but we don't know what to do with that. And I think that's the beautiful context for us then to really see what the invitation to the kingdom of heaven is really like, because what are the kinds of people who are accepting of this new reality of God, of the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the Samaritans, the eunuchs, all of these different people that we've been looking at this year who were the ones to choose to say yes to the kingdom of God. Last week, I talked about it as how Jesus frames it in the Sermon on the Mount, those people who are hungry, the people that are thirsty, the people who yearn for righteousness, who yearn to be delivered, the ones who have been oppressed by the system, the ones who have been diminished and held down and told that they're not very valuable 
Those are the people that are in the best position possible to receive the good news of the kingdom because for them, it's actually good news. And they choose to step into it and accept this new vision of neighborliness, of camaraderie, of family that we find at the table of God. And of course, this final phrase in verse 14, many are invited, but few are chosen. What does it mean that many are invited, but few are chosen? I think that for, for me, when I read the story of God, I, I see time and again this vision that God is inviting in all of mankind. Nobody is exempt from the invitation. And I think sometimes, again, in our self-righteousness, we like to predefine who we think has been invited and who probably hasn't. We find these, what I think are absolutely terrible theologies of, well, before the, before the earth was created, God decided, yes, these ones, they all get to go to heaven, but these ones, they, they're all going to hell. They maybe think they're invited, but they're not. They're just, they're just there for my glory somehow, but it's going to be in their destruction. I think everybody is invited. I think we're all invited to the party. He says, many are invited, but few are chosen. And I think we find this in the story of the man at the end. I want to read it again. The king came in to see the guests. He noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. What does Jesus mean by this? Everybody in the day would have had at least one good wedding outfit that they would pull out whenever the, whenever the time was to go to the wedding. How many of you guys, you have like that one suit, you know? And you got like three ties. Women, any of you have just like that one dress? I know that's a little bit faux pas. You cannot possibly be seen in the same dress twice in the same year, heaven forbid. But everybody in that day would have had their, their one set of wedding clothes. But this man comes to the party without being prepared, without the willingness to step in. And so I think there's something here Jesus is trying to tell us. This is a man who wants to take advantage of the kindness of the king. He wants to, he wants to dine and dash. He wants to come in. He wants to kind of slink around. He wants to take advantage of the king and his kingdom and his party, and then he wants to go on his way. But when he actually gets called out for him, and the, and the king even says, calls him friend, like, why aren't you prepared? Like, he's, he's saying, like, why, why don't you want to actually receive my full generosity, my full kindness. And the man has no answer for that because he was never really in a position to repent. He was never really in a position to be open with his life, to be open with his story, and to receive everything that the king has for him there. And so he's, he too finds himself in the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. He chose his kingdom. He chose to find himself on the outside. There's this powerful song by Nine Inch Nails where he says, it's called... I could quote Trent Reznor. Johnny Cash did a cover of it. It's called Hurt. And he talks about like being, you know, my empire of dirt. Like I, I would rather be the king of my own heap of garbage than I would to enter into the goodness. I think that's what's happening with this man. And I think that's what's happening with so many people that actively choose the outer darkness. In Revelation, it says that the gates of the kingdom are never shut. The invitation is always there for us to step into the goodness of God. But so often, we say, no, 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 I would rather be the emperor, the empress of my own little pile of garbage. I'd rather be the one to have control. I'd rather be the one that has power here, even if it's just power over stuff that's worth not very much. 
And so for many are invited, but few are chosen. I think we're all invited, but it's those of us who respond in kind to give over our sense of control and self-righteousness, to step into the kingdom, to witness the party, that the ones who are chosen are the ones who are invited and have responded in kind. You see, this is not the cheap grace that we're sometimes sold as good news, that you're automatically in by default and it asks nothing of you. The new reality of God, the kingdom of heaven, is going to cost us something. The kingdom of heaven is going to cost you something. But it's going to cost you your sense of control. It's going to cost you your sense of power. It's going to cost you your right to self-definition. I think this invites us to really sit up on our seats, that this isn't necessarily about some sort of afterlife reality. This is a reality that we choose into here and now, that we can only approach the kingdom of Jesus with the humble expectation that we will be changed. If we try to take advantage of the kingdom, it will not work. If we only come to the party to try to, to, to take what we can and then run off, it will not work work, that we see in Scripture time and again what I see in this room as I look around, and I know so many of your stories, it's that kingdom people come to God expecting forgiveness, and that forgiveness begins to open the path to healing, to liberation, and to salvation, that those who are cast into the outer darkness only come expecting to be justified in their behavior as it already stands today. God, all I want to do is for you to reinforce that I'm on the inside, that I've got it all together, that I know what I'm talking about. And perhaps some of us, when we meet God face to face, are like this man, that we're speechless because we recognize that we've actually wanted just to take advantage of the king's hospitality without responding in the way the king desires for us to be, open-handed, open-hearted, willing to be changed, willing to be transformed. So we could even ask, what kind of garments, what kind of wedding clothes does the party require of you to wear? Well, again, what is the fabric of the kingdom of heaven? It's mercy, it's justice, it's righteousness, it's holiness. These are the, this is the clothing, this is the dress, this is the tuxedo that you're meant to wear, that you show up to the party, being willing to inhabit the character of God itself because it's the character of God that is the fabric of His kingdom. Luke chooses to to speak this parable in a slightly different way, and I think it actually reinforces what we're examining here. In Luke 14, he writes it this way, and maybe maybe this is kind of Luke's angle on this parable, or maybe Jesus, like me, he just kind of recycles the same stories over and over again and hopes nobody notices. I don't know. But it says this, when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who'd been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see to it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. (laughs) But 
Jesus, you're hilarious. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. I love the slightly different angle that we get of this parable in the story of Luke. How often do we put off immersing ourselves in the kingdom of heaven because we want to hold on to our old identities, because we want to make excuses for our brokenness. Ouch. How often do we like to wear our sin as our identity, as our garments? We can become addicted to our brokenness. We can become addicted to our little piles of dirt that we're the kings and queens over. And we come up with all sorts of excuses why it's not quite our time to repent, to show up, to take part in the party. In the fourth century, St. Augustine of Hippo, who's now this you know, pillar of the Western church and gave us so much of our theology and doctrine, he was uh, kind of caught praying this prayer. He said, grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. <laughs> he was a bit of a sex addict, honestly, if you look that up. And I love that because how often do we pray like that? Yes, God, grant me the things of the kingdom. Just can we do it on Thursday? <laughs> you know? Can we, just, can we just wait a little bit longer? Can I just kind of play, play here in the mud for just a little bit longer? And we put off entry into the kingdom because our sin becomes our identity. We'd rather stay where we are now. We'd rather affirm ourselves in where we're at now. And on what we end up doing is closing ourselves off to love. But the invitation to the party challenges us to trust the king and his plans for us. It's not our party. It's not our kingdom. We don't get to define it. We don't get to determine what the menu is going to be. We don't get to determine what the dance number is going to be. We give ourselves over to the party of God because what that does is invites us to trust that this party is better than any party that we could conjure on our own but it invites us to have faith in Him, to know that God knows what's best for us over and above what we think is best for us, that God's identity for who we are as human beings is over and above every identity that we could truly create for ourselves. And so coming back to that kind of primary point that I wanted to make today, I want to change the, the language so slightly to say, well, what if we are open to the love of God that we find within His kingdom at His banquet? I think true love lives in the space where total acceptance meets total transformation. The kingdom of heaven lives in that space. True love lives in that space where total acceptance meets total transformation. I think for many of us growing up with a limited understanding or li limited reception of love, we kind of found ourselves in one of two camps. Number one is this form of permissive love that says, you don't need to change. You can do whatever you want, and I'm going to still love you. And there's an ounce of truth in that. But I know we've all had that friend that dated the guy, and we're like, well, he's a pretty terrible human being, but if we love her, we're just going to let her make her own decisions, right? And then we begin to realize, like, I don't know if that's really love, if that kind of permissiveness, you can do whatever you want and I'm totally fine with it. I think before long we begin to realize that's not really love. 
But on the other side of the spectrum, we find this, this form of con conditional love, which I say is a form of non-love that says you're not lovable until you change. You're not lovable until you get it right. You're not lovable until you earn it. And so we have these extremes of you're totally fine and nothing needs to change, and you need to change until, until you see yourself worthy of my love. We find ourselves in this one spot of just total acceptance without any need for transformation or total transformation without any form of acceptance. And I think neither of these things are true love because what we find in their extremes is that form of permissive love becomes neglect because we allow people to hurt themselves to hurt other people. We do not see people live up to their potential as human beings. Don't ever tell me you don't want me to change. <laughs> I want to change. I want to grow. I want to become more than I am today. Why would we not want that? And sometimes our love is so neglectful. It's so permissive. It's so weak. But on that other side, this place of transformation, we find transformation without any form of acceptance, and it becomes legalism. It becomes performance-based love. And that's where we often find the place of abuse. That's what abuse is. It's somebody acting out in a way verbally, physically, sexually, whatever it might be, to say, you are not okay way you are right now. You need to change. You need to do better. You need to work harder, and then maybe you'll be able to receive my love. And how often do we give one of those forms of false love or the other to the kingdom of heaven? We want acceptance without transformation, or we want transformation without acceptance. I think true love lives in the space between those two realities, because the love of God blesses you where you are today, but He's not content to leave you there. Don't you want your beloved to grow, your children? your spouse, your friends? Don't you want to see them grow and to reach their potential? Don't you want to grow? Don't you want to become more than you are? Don't you want to let go of these false identities that you've gathered up in order to protect yourself from the world or to assert yourself in the world? Sometimes we just want to belong without the expectation that we're going to become something. Sometimes the good news of the kingdom is too good to be true because we cannot believe that we do not have to behave in order to be deemed worthy of belonging. And I think it's important for each of you to take a mental stock of where do you naturally fall in that spectrum of love? What's your default? What's your instinctual gut-level reaction to love? Do you just want belonging without transformation? Or do you think that it's about you performing and behaving so that you can earn it? Let's just take 10 seconds and reflect on that. What's your default position when it comes to love? I think ironically, this is the true beautiful irony of love, to love unconditionally is the only true path to transformation. And I think you know that. I think all of us in this room, we've experienced true unconditional love on some deep level, and when we were loved exactly for who we are, it made us want to become better. 
it made us want to become more. I think this is why God gifts us with the relationships that we have in this life, with families and friends and spouses and any other positive, life-affirming relationship that we know when we are fully accepted. It makes us want to grow. It makes us want to become more. You want to become a better person because you're so accepted. And I think there's a, there's a saint of the last century that demonstrated this so beautifully to me. His name uh, was Fred Rogers. Anybody in here grow up with Mr. Rogers? Show of hands. So, I've, I've said before, you know, my first image of God, I was four or five years old, was Superman. Okay, that was, my, that was my experience of God and going to my dad and saying, Dad, is Jesus like Superman? Yeah, I guess so kind of, and we had that little discussion, so my four-year, you know, four or five-year-old theological mind is just kind of like tucking that away. I think my second image of God was this man. So Fred Rogers was actually uh, an ordained uh, Presbyterian minister. He was ordained specifically for television evangelism, which wasn't something the Presbyterian church did very much. And when, he's, when he began to work in, in uh, in television, he was absolutely disgusted by what he found in children's entertainment. This is like late 50s, early 60s. And he made this resolve that children actually deserved better. And he began Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood around 62 or 63. And I love, there's, this, uh, there's a documentary out right now called Would You Be My Neighbor? It is the most important film of the year. You need to go see it. Please go and see this film. But it's, it's so great because one of the producers of the show was saying, Basically, if you took all the rules of what good children's television was supposed to be, Fred just did exactly the opposite. The sets were cheap. It was slow. There was literally, I don't know if anybody remembers this this episode, but he wanted to teach us what a minute felt like, and so he took an egg timer and he set it to a minute, and they just sat there on television, (laughs) on television for a minute. And I remember being a little kid and just being enraptured by that. Because there was this way that he spoke to us that just affirmed us so much in where we were at in that moment. I want to show a little clip from one of the key episodes. This is a little boy. His name's Jeff Erlinger. Um, and he had, uh, he had a tumor when he was born at about seven months. And uh, it kind of uh, stopped the, the functioning of basically his entire body, especially his limbs. And he was confined to a wheelchair, and he's constantly going through all these different surgeries. And so he comes on. They had met when he was about five. He's a little bit older in this clip. Um, and they're just having this little conversation. I think it so beautifully uh, typifies the way that Fred Rogers treated us as children. Let's watch this clip. That just shows you have a lot of things happening to you when you're handicapped but most of the time. And sometimes that happens when you're not handicapped. Of course. But you're able to talk about those things. Yeah. So well. And help other people. Mm Mm-hmm. Who might have the same kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you know that song that I sometimes sing called, It's You I Like? Mm Mm-hmm. I'd like to sing that to you and with you. Okay, Okay, sure. It's you I like. It's not the things you wear. It's not the way you do your hair, but it's you I like. The way you are right now, the way down deep inside you, not the things that hide you, not your fancy chair, (laughs) that's just beside you, but it's you 
I like every part of you. Your skin, your eyes, your feelings, whether old or new. I hope that you remember, even when you're feeling blue, that it's you I like. be times when you do feel blue. Uh-huh. What do you do during those times? This just shows you Yep. Um, I, I walked out of that theater and I couldn't believe that a human being like that existed. Have you ever met that kind of person in your life? And you just, you, they don't seem real. He was the kind of person where there had to be all of these internet rumors about him that he was like, you know, an assassin in the Korean War, or he had tattoos all over his arms because obviously tattoos are evil or whatever. Like, people had to invent things about this man because he seemed too good to be true. And everybody in that film said he was exactly the same person on screen as he was off. I think Mr. Rogers understood where true love really lies. He understood that we are not our abilities or our disabilities. We're not the situations in our lives. We're not our feelings. We're not our intellect. But at the core, we are the beloved, waiting to be fully realized by true love. I think all of these, these extra things, they help us to maneuver our belovedness, to come into contact with our belovedness, but they're beside us, as he says about this little boy's chair. It's this thing that's beside you. It's not who you really are. It's part of your story, and I bless it, but it's not who you really are. Here's this beautiful quote. He says, love is at the root of everything, all learning, all relationships, love, or the lack of it. In the past 20 years, it was very unvogue to criticize millennials as the, the entitled generation and I don't know if you remember this, there were many articles about 10 years ago that, that blamed Mr. Rogers for how entitled we are as millennials, how spoiled we are, and how much we think that we deserve things without working for it. And I read one of these articles this week, and one of the main critics was a, a professor at LSU named Don Chance, and he literally said this in this article. He said, the world owes you nothing. You have to work and compete. If you want to be special, you'll have to prove it. If that is not the outer darkness, I don't know what is. If that's not the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, I don't know what hell is like. And I think every day, every moment, we have the choice of what kind of world do we want to live in? Do we want to live in the kingdom of heaven where love is at the root of everything? Or do we want to confine ourselves to the outer darkness? If you want to be special, you have to prove it. I think contrary to this nonsense of us being the entitled generation, if we had really internalized Fred Rogers' message, the world would be a better place. 
if we really understood what it means to be loved for who we are and to allow that love to be the very place where we begin to transform, where we realize our potential, where we become more authentically human, where we become more authentically Christ-like, the world would be dramatically different. And my challenge for you today is will you accept the invitation to the party and everything that it asks of you in return? This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon. 